0: Once again, it is Black Clock Audio Tales. We are in our final week of Edgar Allan Poe in the final week of January. Check out our schedule in the show notes to find out what next month will be for Black Clock Audio Tales and People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Also check out Articulate Warbling with Zach Ferguson. And also, Dave's Corner of the Universe and Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans, which will be coming out by the end of this month. So, hey, check out that, wait for that, look for that. Here we go. Edgar Allan Poe, Volume 5 of Collected Works of Edgar Allan Poe, The Raven. This episode is brought to you by BunnySlippers.com. Keep your feet warm, don't get cold bunny slippers, dino sound slippers, s'more slippers, sports slippers, sci-fi, fantasy, cute critters, all kinds of cool stuff and don't forget about found-item clothing, cool shirts from your favorite cult films from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. You wanna dress like Booger? You wanna dress like Styles from Teen Wolf and wear a t-shirt that says, what are you looking at? Dinos?" You can do that. Found-item clothing. And remember, check us out on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, And PGTTCM.com, look for us, PGTTCM.com, Black Clock Audio Tales, and here you go with Edgar Allan Poe. All right, let's start.
1: Persone
2: Narrator, read by Ellen Preckle.
3: Alessandra, read by Amanda Friday.
2: Castiglione, read by Phil Schempf. Di
4: read by Augie Pag.
5: Lalage, read by Pam Castile.
6: Yasinta, read by Abayi.
7: Monk, read by Larry Wilson.
8: Baldazar, read by Trisha G.
9: Polition, read by Alan Rose.
1: Voice,
6: sung by Francis Brown.
9: Benito, read
7: by Larry Wilson.
1: Scene 1. Rome,
2: a hall in a palace. Alessandra and Castiglione.
3: Thou art sad, Castiglione.
2: Sad? Not I. Oh, I am the happiest, happiest man in Rome. A few days more thou knowest, my Alessandra will make thee mine. Oh, I am very happy.
3: Methinks thou hast a singular way of showing thy happiness. What ails thee, cousin of mine? Why didst thou sigh so deeply?
2: Did I sigh? I was not conscious of it. It is a fashion, a silly, a most silly fashion I have, when I am very happy. Did I sigh?
3: Sighing. Thou didst. Thou art not well. Thou hast indulged too much of late, and I am vexed to see it. Late hours and wine, Castiglione, these will ruin thee. Thou art already altered, thy looks are haggard. Nothing so wears away the constitution as late hours and wine.
2: Castiglione musing. Nothing, fair cousin, nothing. Not even deep sorrow wears it away like evil hours and wine. I will amend.
3: Do it. I would have thee drop thy riotous company too, fellows low-born. Ill will suit the like with old de Broglie's heir, and Alessandra's husband.
2: I will drop them.
3: Thou wilt, thou must. Attend thou also more to thy dress and equipage. They are over plain for thy lofty rank and fashion. Much depends upon appearances.
2: I'll see to it.
3: Then see to it. Pay more attention, sir, to a becoming carriage. Much thou wantest in dignity.
2: Much, much, oh, much I want in proper dignity.
1: Alessandra haughtily.
3: Thou mockest me, sir.
1: Castiglione, abstractedly.
2: Sweet, gentle Lalage.
3: Heard I aright. I speak to him. He speaks of Lalage, Sir Count
1: Places her hand on his shoulder.
3: What art thou dreaming? He's not well. What ails thee, sir?
1: Castiglione, startling.
2: Cousin, fair cousin, madame. I crave thy pardon. Indeed, I am not well. Your hand from off my shoulder, if you please. This air is most oppressive. Madame the Duke. Enter de Broglio.
4: My son, I've news for thee. Hey, what's the matter? Observing Alessandra. He the pouts? Kiss her, Castiglione. Kiss her, you dog. And make it up, I say, this minute. I've news for you both. Polition is expected hourly in Rome. Polition, Earl of Leicester. We'll have him at the wedding. Tis his first visit to the imperial city.
3: What, Politiana of Britain, Earl of Leicester?
4: The same, my love. We'll have him at the wedding. A man quite young in years, but gray in fame. I have not seen him, but rumor speaks of him as a prodigy, pre eminent in arts and arms, and wealth, and high descent. We'll have him at the wedding.
3: I have heard much of this Polyteon. Gay, volatile, and giddy, is he not? And little given to thinking.
4: Far from it, love. No branch, they say, of all philosophy, so deep, abstruse, he has not mastered it. Learned as few are learned.
3: Tis very strange. I have known men have seen Politian and sought his company. They speak of him as of one who entered madly into life, drinking the cup of pleasure to the dregs.
2: Ridiculous. No, I have seen Politian and know him well. Nor learned nor mirthful he. He is a dreamer and a man shut out from common passions.
4: Children, we disagree. Let us go forth and taste the fragrant air of the garden. Did I dream, or did I hear, Polition was a melancholy man?
1: Exeunt Scene 2 Rome, a lady's apartment with a window open and looking into a garden. Lalage, in deep mourning, reading at a table on which lie some books and a hand-mirror. In the background, Jacinta, a servant-maid, leans carelessly upon a chair. Jacinta, is it thou? Jacinta, pertly,
5: Yes, ma'am, I am here. I did not know, Jacinta, you were in waiting. Sit down, let not my presence trouble you. Sit down, for I am humble, most humble.
1: Jacinta aside. Tis time. Jacinta seats herself in a sidelong manner upon the chair, resting her elbows upon the back, and regarding her mistress with a contemptuous look. Lalage continues to read
5: it in another climate so he said bore a bright golden flower but not in this soil
1: pauses turns over some leaves and resumes
5: no lingering winters there nor snow nor shower but ocean ever to refresh mankind breathes the shrill spirit of the western wind oh beautiful most beautiful how like to what my fevered soul doth dream of heaven O oh, happy land, pauses. She died. The maiden died. A still more happy maiden who couldst die, Jacinta.
1: Jacinta returns no answer, and Lalage presently resumes.
5: Again, a similar tale told of a beauteous dame beyond the sea. Thus speaketh one Ferdinand in the words of the play. She died full young. One Bossola answers him. I think not so, her infelicity. Seemed to have years too many. Ah, luckless lady, Acinta.
1: Still no answer.
5: Here's a far sterner story, but like, oh, very like in its despair, of that Egyptian queen winning so easily a thousand hearts, losing at length her own. She died, thus ended the history, and her maids, lean over and weep, Two gentle maids, with gentle names, Iros and Charmion, Rainbow and Dove, Asinta.
1: Asinta, pettishly.
5: Madam, what is it? Wilt thou, my good Asinta, be so kind as go down in the library and bring me the holy evangelist? Pshaw. Exit. If there be balm for the wounded spirit in Gilead, it is there. Dew in the night time of my bitter trouble. Will there be found dew sweeter far than that which hangs like chains of pearl on Herman Hill?
1: Re-enter Jacinta and throws a volume on the table.
3: There, ma'am, 's the book. Indeed, she is very troublesome.
1: Aside. Lalage, astonished.
5: "'What didst thou say, Asenta? "'Have I done aught to grieve thee or to vex thee? "'I am sorry, for thou hast served me long "'and ever been trustworthy and respectful.'" Resumes her reading. "'I
6: can't believe she has any more jewels. "'No, no, she gave me all.'" Aside.
5: "'What didst thou say, Asenta? "'Now I bethink me, thou hast not spoken lately of thy wedding.'" How fares Gurugo? And when is it to be? Can I do aught? Is there no farther aid? Thou needest, centa. Is there no farther
3: aid? Oh, that's meant for me.
5: Aside. I'm sure, madam, you need not be always throwing those jewels in my teeth. Jewels? Ascenta, now indeed, centa. I thought not of the jewels. Oh, perhaps not. But then I might have
3: sworn it.
5: After all, there's Hugo who says the ring is only paste, for he's sure the Count Castiglioni never would have given a real diamond to such as you. And at the best, I'm certain, madam, you cannot have use for jewels now. But I might have sworn it. Exit.
1: Lalage bursts into tears and leans her head upon the table. After a short pause, raises it.
5: Poor Lalage and is it come to this thy servant maid but courage tis but a viper whom thou hast cherished to sting thee to the soul
1: taking up the mirror
5: ha here at least a friend too much a friend in earlier days a friend will not deceive thee fair mirror and true now tell me for thou canst a tale a pretty tale and heed thou not Though it be rife with woe, it answers me. It speaks of sunken eyes and wasted cheeks, and beauty long deceased, remembers me of joy departed, hope, the seraph hope, inurned and entombed. Now, in a tone, low, sad, and solemn, but most audible, whispers of early grave, untimely yawning, for ruined maid. Fair mirror and true, Thou liest not. Thou hast no end to gain, no heart to break. Castiglione lied, who said he loved. Thou true, he false, false, false.
1: While she speaks, a monk enters her apartment and approaches
7: unobserved. Refuge thou hast, sweet daughter in heaven. Think of eternal things. Give up thy soul to penitence and pray. Lalage, arising hurriedly,
5: I cannot pray. My soul is at war with God. The frightful sounds of merriment below disturb my senses. Go, I cannot pray. The sweet airs from the garden worry me. Thy presence grieves me. Go. Thy priestly raiment fills me with dread. Thy ebony crucifix with horror and awe.
7: Think of thy precious soul.
5: Think of my early days, think of my father and mother in heaven, think of our quiet home, and the rivulet that ran before the door. Think of my little sisters, think of them, and think of me, think of my trusting love, and confidence, his vows, my ruin. Think, think of my unspeakable misery. Be gone, yet stay, yet stay. What was it thou saidst of prayer, and penitence, Didst thou not speak of faith and vows before the throne? I did. Tis well. There is a vow where fitting should be made, a sacred vow, imperative and urgent, a solemn vow.
7: Daughter, this zeal is well.
5: Father, this zeal is anything but well. Hast thou a crucifix fit for this thing, a crucifix whereon to register this sacred vow?
1: He hands her his own.
5: Not that! Oh, no, no, no! Shuddering. Not that! Not that! I tell thee, holy man, thy raiments and thy ebony cross affright me. Stand back! I have a crucifix, myself. I have a crucifix, methinks, twere fitting the deed, the vow, the symbol of the deed, and the deed's register should tally, father.
1: Draws a cross-handled dagger, and
5: raises it on high. Behold, the cross wherewith a vow like mine is written in heaven.
7: Thy words are madness, daughter, and speak a purpose unholy. Thy lips are livid, thine eyes are wild. Tempt not the wrath divine. Pause ere too late. O be not, be not rash. Swear not the oath. Oh, swear it not.
5: Tis sworn.
1: SCENE 3. An Apartment in a Palace. Politian
8: and Balthazar. Arouse thee now, Politian. Thou must not, nay, indeed, indeed, shalt not, give away unto these humors. Be thyself, shake off the idle fancies that beset thee, and live, for now thou diest.
9: Not so, Balthazar. Surely I live.
8: Plitian, it doth grieve me to see thee thus.
9: Baldassar doth grieve me to give thee cause for grief, my honoured friend. Command me, sir, what wouldst thou have me do, at thy behest I will shake off that nature which from my forefathers I did inherit, which with my mother's milk I did imbibe, and be no more pollision, but some other. Command me, sir.
8: To the field, then, to the field, to the senate or the field.
9: Alas, alas, there is an imp would follow me even there, there is an imp hath followed me even there, there is—what voice was that?
8: I heard it not, I heard not any voice except thine own, and the echo of thine own.
9: Then I but dreamed.
8: Give not thy soul to dreams, the camp, the court befit thee, fame awaits thee, glory calls. And heard the trumpet tongued thou wilt not hear in hearkening to imaginary sounds and phantom voices.
9: It is a phantom voice. Didst thou not hear it then?
8: I heard it not.
9: Thou heardst it not. Baldazar, speak no more to me, Polition of thy camps and courts. Oh, I am sick, sick, sick even unto death of the hollow and high sounding vanities of the populous earth. BEAR WITH ME YET A WHILE, WE HAVE BEEN BOYS TOGETHER, SCHOOLFELLOWS, AND NOW OUR FRIENDS, YET SHALL NOT BE SO LONG, FOR IN THE ETERNAL CITY THOU SHALT DO ME A KIND and GENTLE OFFICE, AND A POWER, A POWER AUGUST, BENIGNANT, AND SUPREME, SHALL THEN ABSOLVE THEE OF ALL FURTHER DUTIES UNTO THY FRIEND.
8: THOU SPEAKEST A FEARFUL RIDDLE I WILL NOT UNDERSTAND.
9: Yet now as fate approaches, and the hours are breathing low, The sands of time are changed to golden grains, And dazzle me, Baldassarre. Alas, alas, I cannot die, Having within my heart so keen a relish for the beautiful As hath been kindled within it. Methinks the air is balmier now than it was wont to be. Rich melodies are floating in the winds, A rarer loveliness bedecks the earth and with a holier luster the quiet moon sitteth in heaven Hist hist thou canst not say thou hearest not now Baldassarre. indeed i hear not not hear it listen now listen the faintest sound and yet the sweetest that ear ever heard a lady's voice and sorrow in the tone Baldazar, it oppresses me like a spell again again How solemnly it falls into my heart of hearts, that eloquent voice! Surely I never heard, yet it were well had I but heard it with its thrilling tones in earlier days.
8: I myself hear it now. Be still. The voice, if I mistake not greatly, proceeds from yonder lattice, which you may see very plainly through the window. It belongs, does it not, unto this palace of the Duke. The singer is undoubtedly beneath the roof of His Excellency, and perhaps is even that Alessandra of whom he spoke as the betrothed of Castiglione, his son and heir.
9: Be still, it comes again. Voice very faintly.
6: And is thy heart so strong As for to leave me thus? Who had loved so long, wealth and woe among, and is thy heart so strong as for to leave me thus? Say nay, say nay.
8: The song is English, and I oft have heard it in merry England, never so plaintively. Hissed, hissed,
1: it comes again. Voice more loudly.
6: Is it so strong, as for to leave me thus? Who have loved thee so long in wealth and woe among? And is thy heart so strong? As for to leave me, thus, say nay, say nay.
8: Tis hushed, and all is still.
9: All is not still.
8: Let us go down.
9: Go down, Balthazar, go.
8: The hour is growing late. The duke awaits us. Thy presence is expected in the hall below. What ails thee, Earl Politian?
1: voice distinctly
6: who hath loved thee so long in wealth and woe among and is thy heart so strong say nay say nay
8: let us descend tis time polition give these fancies to the wind remember pray your bearing lately savored much of rudeness unto the duke Arouse thee, and remember.
9: Remember? I do. Lead on, I do remember. Going. Let us descend. Believe me, I would give, freely would give, the broad lands of my earldom to look upon the face hidden by yon lattice, to gaze upon that veiled face and hear once more that silent tongue.
8: Let me beg you, sir, descend with me. The duke may be offended. Let us go down, I pray
1: you. Voice loudly,
6: say nay, say nay.
9: Politian, aside. Tis strange, tis very strange. Methought the voice chimed in with my desires and bade me stay.
1: Approaching the window,
9: sweet voice, I heed thee, and will surely stay. Now be this fancy by heaven, or be it fate. Still, I will not descend, balazar Make apology unto the duke for me i go not down tonight
8: your lordship's pleasure shall be attended to good night politian
9: good night my friend good night
1: scene 4 the gardens of a palace moonlight lalage and politian
5: and dost thou speak of love to be politian dost thou speak of love to lalage ah woe ah woe is me this mockery is most cruel most cruel indeed
9: weep not o sob not thus thy bitter tears will madden me Oh mourn not lalage be comforted i know i know it all and still i speak of love look at me brightest and beautiful lalage turn here thine eyes thou askest me if i could speak of love knowing what i know and seeing what i have seen thou askest me that AND THUS I ANSWER THEE, THUS ON MY BENDED KNEE I ANSWER THEE. KNEELING. SWEET Lalage, I LOVE THEE, LOVE THEE, LOVE THEE. THROUGH GOOD AND ILL, THROUGH WEAL AND WOE, I LOVE THEE. NOT MOTHER WITH HER firstborn ON HER KNEE THRILLS WITH INTENSER LOVE THAN I FOR THEE. NOT ON GOD'S ALTAR IN ANY TIME OR CLIME BURNED THERE A HOLIER FIRE THAN BURNETH NOW WITHIN MY SPIRIT FOR THEE. And do I love? Even for thy woes I love thee, Even for thy woes, thy beauty and thy woes.
5: Alas, proud earl, thou dost forget thyself remembering me. How in thy father's halls, among the maidens, Pure and reproachless of thy princely line, Could the dishonoured Lalage abide, Thy wife, and with a tainted memory, MY SEARED AND BLIGHTED NAME, HOW WOULD IT TALLY, WITH THE ANCESTRAL HONORS OF THY HOUSE, AND WITH THY GLORY?
9: SPEAK NOT TO ME OF GLORY, I HATE, I LOATHE THE NAME, I DO ABHOR THE UNSATISFACTORY AND IDEAL THING. ART THOU NOT LALAGE AND I POLITION? DO I NOT LOVE? ART THOU NOT BEAUTIFUL? WHAT NEED WE MORE? AH, GLORY, NOW SPEAK NOT OF IT by all I hold most sacred and most solemn, by all my wishes now, my fears hereafter, by all I scorn on earth and hope in heaven. There is no deed I would more glory in than in thy cause to scoff at this same glory and trample it under foot. What matters it? What matters it, my fairest and my best, that we go down, unhonoured and forgotten, into the dust, so we descend together? Descend together and then and then perchance
5: Why dost thou pause, Polytion?
9: And then perchance arise together, Alaj, and roam the starry and quiet dwellings of the blessed, and still
5: Why dost thou pause, Polition?
9: And still together together
5: now, Earl of Leicester, thou lovest me, and in my heart of hearts, I feel thou lovest me truly.
9: Oh Lalage! Throwing himself upon his knee, and lovest thou me?
5: Hissed, hush! Within the gloom of yonder trees, methought a figure passed, a spectral figure, solemn and slow and noiseless, like the grim shadow conscience, solemn and noiseless
1: walks across, and returns.
5: I was mistaken. Twas but a giant bough, stirred by the autumn wind, Polidion,
9: My Lalage, my love, why art thou moved, why dost thou turn so pale? Not conscience, self, far less a shadow which thou likenest to it, should shake the firm spirit thus. But the night-wind is chilly, and these melancholy boughs throw over all things a gloom.
5: Polidion. Thou speakest to me of love, knowest thou the land, with which all tongues are busy, a land new found, miraculously found by one of Genoa, a thousand leagues within the golden west, a fairy land of flowers and fruit and sunshine, and crystal lakes and overarching forest, and mountains around whose towering summits the winds, of heaven untrammeled flow, which air to breathe is happiness now, and will be freedom hereafter, in days that are to come?
9: Oh, wilt thou, wilt thou fly to that paradise? My Lelage, wilt thou fly thither with me? There care shall be forgotten, and sorrow shall be no more, and eros be all. And life shall then be mine, for I will live for thee, and in thine eyes. And thou shalt be no more a mourner, but the radiant joys shall wait upon thee, and the angel hope attend thee forever, and I will kneel to thee, and worship thee, and call thee my beloved, my own, my beautiful, my love, my wife, my all. Oh, wilt thou, wilt thou, Lalage, fly thither with me?
5: A deed is to be done. Castiglione lives.
9: And he shall die. Exit. Lalage, after a pause.
5: And he shall die. Die alas, Castiglione die who spoke the words? Where am I? What was it he said? Politian, thou art not gone. Thou art not gone. Politian, I feel thou art not gone yet dare not look lest I behold thee not. Thou couldst not go with those words upon thy lips. Oh, speak to me and let me hear thy voice. One word, one word. TO SAY THOU ART NOT GONE, ONE LITTLE SENTENCE, TO SAY HOW THOU DOST SCORN, HOW THOU DOST HATE, MY WOMANLY WEAKNESS, HA, <laughs> HA, THOU ART NOT GONE, OH, SPEAK TO ME, I KNEW THOU wouldst NOT GO, I KNEW THOU WOULDNST NOT GO, COULDNST NOT, DURST NOT GO, VILLAIN, THOU ART NOT GONE, THOU MOCKEST ME, AND THUS I CLUTCH THEE, THUS, HE IS GONE, HE IS GONE, 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 WHERE AM I? tis well tis very well so that the blade be keen the blow be sure tis well tis very well alas alas
9: scene
1: 5 the suburbs politian alone
9: this weakness grows upon me i am faint and much i fear me ill it will not do to die ere i have lived stay stay thy hand o azrael yet a while Prince of the powers of darkness and the tomb, oh, pity me, oh, pity me. Let me not perish now in the budding of my paradisal hope. Give me to live yet, yet a little while. Tis I who pray for life, I who so late demanded but to die. What saith the Count? Enter Balthazar.
8: That knowing no cause of quarrel or of feud between the Earl Polition and himself, he doth decline your cartel.
9: What didst thou say? What answer was it you brought me, good Balthazar? With what excessive fragrance the zephyr comes laden from yonder bowers? A fairer day, or one more worthy Italy, methinks no mortal eyes have seen. What said the Count?
8: That he, Castiglione, not being aware of any feud existing, or any cause of quarrel between your lordship and himself, cannot accept the
9: challenge. It is most true. All this is very true. When saw you, sir, when saw you now Baldazar, in the frigid ungenial Britain which we left so lately, a heaven so calm as this, so utterly free from the evil taint of clouds, and he did say?
8: No more, my lord, than I have told you, sir. The Count Castiglione will not fight, having no cause for quarrel.
9: Now this is true, all very true. Thou art my friend, Baldassar, and I have not forgotten it, thou do me a piece of service. Wilt thou go back, and say unto this man, that I, the Earl of Leicester, hold him a villain? Thus much I prithee say unto the Count, It is exceeding just he should have cause for quarrel.
8: My lord, my friend!
9: Polydion aside. Tis he. He comes himself. Aloud. Thou reasonest well. I know what thou wouldst say, not send the message. Well, I will think of it. I will not send it. Now, prithee, leave me. Hither doth come a person with whom affairs of a most private nature I would adjust.
8: I go. To-morrow we meet, do we not,
1: at the Vatican.
9: At the Vatican.
1: Exit Balthasar.
9: Enter Castiglione. The Earl of Leicester here? I am the Earl of Leicester. And thou seest, dost thou not, that I am here.
2: My lord, some strange, some singular mistake, misunderstanding hath without a doubt arisen. Thou hast been urged thereby, in the heat of anger, to address some words most unaccountable in writing to me, Castiglione. The bearer being Baldassarre, Duke of Surrey, I am aware of nothing which might warrant thee in this thing. Having given thee no offence, ha! am I right?' Was a mistake, undoubtedly. We all do err at times. Draw, villain, and prate no more. Ha! Huh. Draw and villain? Have at thee then at once, proud Earl. DRAWs. Politian, drawing.
9: Thus to the expiatory tomb, untimely sepulchre, I do devote thee in the name of Lalage. Castiglione, letting fall his sword
2: and recoiling to the extremity of the stage. Of Lalage, hold off thy sacred hand. Avant, I say, avant, I will not fight thee. Indeed, I dare not.
9: Thou wilt not fight with me, didst say, Sir Count? Shall I be baffled thus? Now, this is well. Didst say thou darest not? Ah!
2: I dare not, dare not. Hold off thy hand. With that beloved name so fresh upon thy lips, I will not fight thee i cannot dare not
9: now by my halidome i do believe thee coward i do believe thee
2: ha coward this may not be clutches his sword and staggers toward
1: polydion but his purpose is changed before reaching him and he falls upon his knee at the feet of the
2: earl alas my lord it is it is most true in such a cause i am the veriest coward oh pity me Polydion
1: greatly softened.
2: Alas,
9: I do! Indeed,
2: I pity thee. And Lalage. Scoundrel! Arise, and die! It needeth not be. Thus, thus! O let me die thus on my bended knee. It were most fitting that in this deep humiliation I perish. For in the fight I will not raise a hand against thee, Earl of Leicester. Strike thou home. BEARING HIS BOSOM. Here is no let or hindrance to thy weapon. Strike home, I will not fight thee.
9: Now, death and hell, am I not, am I not sorely, grievously tempted to take thee at thy word? But mark me, sir, think not to fly me thus. Do thou prepare for public insult in the streets, before the eyes of the citizens. I'll follow thee like an avenging spirit. I'll follow thee even unto death. Before those whom thou lovest, before all Rome, I'll taunt thee, villain, I'll taunt thee, dost hear, with cowardice, thou wilt not fight me? Thou liest, thou shalt. Exit.
2: Now this indeed is just, most righteous and most just, avenging heaven.
1: Note. Such portions of Polydion as are known to the public first saw the light of publicity in the Southern Literary Messenger for December 1835 and january eighteen thirty six being styled scenes from polition and unpublished drama these scenes were included unaltered in the eighteen forty five collection of poems by poe the larger portion of the original draft subsequently became the property of the present editor but it is not considered just to the poet's memory to publish it the work is a hasty and unrevised production of its author's earlier days of literary labor and beyond the scenes already known, scarcely calculated to enhance his reputation. As a specimen, however, of the parts unpublished, the following fragment from the first scene of Act Two may be offered. The Duke, it should be premised, is uncle to Alessandra, and father of Castiglione, her betrothed.
2: Why do you laugh? Indeed, I hardly know myself. Stay, was it not on yesterday we were speaking of the Earl, of the Earl Politian? Yes, it was yesterday, Alessandra, you and I, and you must remember, we were walking in the garden. Perfectly. I do remember it.
4: What of it? What then? Oh, nothing. Nothing at all. Nothing at all? It is most singular that you should laugh at nothing at all. Most singular. Singular. Look you, Castiglione. Be so kind as tell me, sir, at once what did you mean? What are you talking of?"
2: Was it not so? We differed in opinion touching him. Him?
4: Whom? Why, sir, the Earl of The Earl of Leicester? Yes, is it he you mean? We differed indeed. If now I recollect the words you used were that the Earl you knew was neither learned nor mirthful. (laughs) <laughs> now did I. That did you, sir, and well I knew at the time you were wrong it being not the character of the earl whom all the world allows to be a most hilarious man. Be not, my son, too positive again. Tis singular, most singular. I could not think
2: it possible so little time could so much alter one. To say the truth, about an hour ago, as I was walking with the count San Ozo, all arm in arm we met this very man, the Earl, he with his friend Baldassar, having just arrived in Rome. Ha! <laughs> he is altered! Such an account he gave me of his journey! Twould have made you die with laughter, such tales he told of his caprices and his merry freaks. Along the road, such oddity, such humour, such wit, such whim, such flashes of wild merriment set off, too, in such full relief by the grave demeanour of his friend, who, to speak the truth, was gravity itself. Did I not tell you? You did, and yet tis strange, but true as strange. How much I was mistaken.
4: I always thought the earl a gloomy man. So, so, you see. Be not too positive. Whom have we here?
2: It cannot be the earl the earl oh no tis not the earl but yet it is and leaning upon his friend Baldazar. am welcome sir enter politian and baldassar my lord a second welcome let me give you to rome his grace the duke of broglio father this is the earl politian earl of leicester in great britain politian bows haughtily that his friend Baldazar, duke of surrey the earl has
4: letters so please you for your grace "'Ah, ah! Most welcome to Rome, and to our palace, Earl Polition. "'And you, most noble duke, I am glad to see you. "'I knew your father well, my lord Polition. "'Castiglione, call your cousin hither, "'and let me make the noble earl acquainted with your betrothed. "'You come, sir, at a time most seasonable. "'The wedding—'
9: "'Touching those letters, sir, your son made mention of. "'Your son, is he not?' Touching those letters, sir, I wot not of them. If such there be, my friend Baldazar here, Baldazar, ah, my friend Baldazar here, will hand them to your grace. I would retire.
4: Retire? So soon. What ho, Benito, Rupert, his
2: lordship's chambers. Show his lordship to them. His lordship is unwell. Enter Benito. This way, my lord. Exit, followed
7: by Polidion. RETIRE? UNWELL.
8: So please you, sir, I fear me, tis as you say. His lordship is unwell. The damp air of the evening, the fatigue of a long journey, the... Indeed, I had better follow his lordship. He must be unwell. I will return anon.
4: Return anon? Now this is very strange. Castiglione, this way, my son, I wish to speak with thee. You surely were mistaken in what you said of the earl, mirthful indeed. Which of us said Polition was a melancholy man? Exeunt.
1: End of section forty-two.
10: Recording by Sean Daly. Letter to Mr. B. by Edgar Allan Poe. West Point. 1831 Dear B, Believing only a portion of my former volume to be worthy a second edition, that small portion I thought it as well to include in the present book as to republish by itself. I have therefore herein combined Al Araf and Tamerlane with other poems hitherto unprinted. Nor have I hesitated to insert from the minor poems, now omitted, whole lines and even passages, to the end that being placed in a fairer light and the trash shaken from them in which they are embedded, they may have some chance of being seen by posterity. It has been said that a good critique on a poem may be written by one who is no poet himself. This, according to your idea in mine of poetry, I feel to be false. The less poetical the critic, the less just the critique, and the converse. On this account, and because there are but few bees in the world, I would be as much ashamed of the world's good opinion as proud of your own, Another than yourself might here observe, Shakespeare is in possession of the world's good opinion, and yet Shakespeare is the greatest of poets. It appears then that the world judge correctly. Why should you be ashamed of their favorable judgment? The difficulty lies in the interpretation of the word judgment or opinion. The opinion is the world's truly, but it may be called theirs as a man would call a book his, having bought it. He did not write the book, but it is his. They did not originate the opinion, but it is theirs. A fool, for example, thinks Shakespeare a great poet, yet the fool has never read Shakespeare. But the fool's neighbor, who is a step higher on the andes of the mind, whose head, that is to say, his more exalted thought, is too far above the fool to be seen or understood, but whose feet, by which I mean his everyday actions, are sufficiently near to be discerned, and by means of which that superiority is ascertained, which but for them would never have been discovered. This neighbor asserts that Shakespeare is a great poet, The fool believes him, and it is henceforward his opinion. This neighbor's own opinion has, in like manner, been adopted from one above him, and so ascendingly to a few gifted individuals who kneel around the summit, beholding, face to face, the master spirit who stands upon the pinnacle. You are aware of the great barrier in the path of an American writer. He is read, if at all, in preference to the combined and established wit of the world. I say established for it is with literature as with law or empire. An established name is an estate in tenure, or a throne in possession. Besides, one might suppose that books, like their authors, improve by travel. Their having crossed the sea is, with us, so great a distinction. Our antiquaries abandon time for distance. Our very fops glance from the binding to the bottom of the title page, where the mystic characters which spell London, Paris, or Genoa are precisely so many letters of recommendation. I mentioned just now a vulgar error as regards criticism. I think the notion that no poet can form a correct estimate of his own writings is another. I remarked before that in proportion to the poetical talent would be the justice of a critique upon poetry. Therefore a bad poet would, I grant, make a false critique, and his self-love would infallibly bias his little judgment in his favor. But a poet, who is indeed a poet, could not, I think, fail of making a just critique. Whatever should be deducted on the score of self-love might be replaced on account of his intimate acquaintance with the subject. In short, we have more instances of false criticism than of just where one's own writings are the test, simply because we have more bad poets than good. There are of course many objections to what I say. Milton is a great example of the contrary. But his opinion with respect to the Paradise Regained is by no means fairly ascertained by what trivial circumstances men are often led to assert what they do not really believe. Perhaps an inadvertent word has descended to posterity, but in fact the paradise regained is little if at all inferior to the paradise lost, and is only supposed so to be because men do not like epics. Whatever they may say to the contrary, in reading those of Milton in their natural order, are too much wearied with the first to derive any pleasure from the second. I dare say Milton preferred Comus to either. If so, justly. As I am speaking of poetry, it will not be amiss to touch slightly upon the most singular heresy in its modern history, the heresy of what is called, very foolishly, the Lake School. Some years ago I might have been induced, by an occasion like the present, to attempt a formal refutation of their doctrine. At present it would be a work of supererogation. The wise must bow to the wisdom of such men as Coleridge and Southey, but, being wise, have laughed at poetical theories so prosaically exemplified. Aristotle, with singular assurance, has declared poetry the most philosophical of all writings. But it required a Wordsworth to pronounce it the most metaphysical. He seems to think that the end of poetry is, or should be, instruction. Yet it is a truism that the end of our existence is happiness. If so, the end of every separate part of our existence, everything connected with our existence, should be still happiness. Therefore, the end of instruction should be happiness and happiness is another name for pleasure. Therefore, the end of instruction should be pleasure. Yet we see the above-mentioned opinion implies precisely the reverse. To proceed. Ceteris paribus. He who pleases is of more importance to his fellow men than he who instructs, since utility is happiness, and pleasure is the end already obtained, which instruction is merely the means of obtaining. I see no reason, then, Why are metaphysical poets should plume themselves so much on the utility of their works, unless indeed they refer to instruction with eternity in view? In which case, sincere respect for their piety would not allow me to express my contempt for their judgment, contempt which it would be difficult to conceal, since their writings are professedly to be understood by the few, and it is the many who stand in need of salvation. In such case I should no doubt be tempted to think of the devil in Melmoth, who labors indefatigably through three octavo volumes, to accomplish the destruction of one or two souls, while any common devil would have demolished one or two thousand. Against the subtleties which would make poetry a study, not a passion, it becomes the metaphysician to reason, but the poet to protest. Yet Wordsworth and Coleridge are men in years, the one imbued in contemplation from his childhood, the other a giant in intellect and learning. The diffidence, then, with which I venture to dispute their authority would be overwhelming, did I not feel, from the bottom of my heart, that learning has little to do with the imagination, intellect with the passions, or age with poetry. Trifles, like straws, upon the surface flow. He who would search for pearls must dive below. Are lines which have not done much mischief. As regards the greater truths, men oftener err by seeking them at the bottom than at the top. Truth lies in the huge abysses where wisdom is sought, not in the palpable palaces where she is found. The ancients were not always right in hiding the goddess in a well. Witness the light which Bacon has thrown upon philosophy. Witness the principles of our divine faith, the moral mechanism by which the simplicity of a child may overbalance the wisdom of a man. We see an instance of Coleridge's liability to err in his Biografia Literaria, professedly his literary life and opinions. But in fact, a treatise de omnes quibile et quibidum alis, he goes wrong by reason of his very profundity and of his error, we have a natural type in the contemplation of a star. He who regards it directly and intensely sees it is true, the star, but it is the star without a ray, while he who surveys it less inquisitively is conscious of all for which the star is useful to us below, its brilliancy and its beauty. As to Wordsworth, I have no faith in him, that he had in youth the feelings of a poet I believe, for there are glimpses of extreme delicacy in his writings, And delicacy is the poet's own kingdom, his El Dorado. But they have the appearance of a better day recollected. And glimpses, at best, are little evidence of present poetic fire. We know that a few straggling flowers spring up daily in the crevices of the glacier. He was to blame in wearing away his youth in contemplation with the end of poetizing in his manhood. With the increase of his judgment, the light which should make it apparent has faded away. His judgment, consequently, is too correct. This may not be understood, but the old Goths of Germany would have understood it, who used to debate matters of importance to their state twice, once when drunk, and once when sober. Sober that they might not be deficient in formality, drunk lest they should be destitute of vigor. The long wordy discussions by which he tries to reason us into admiration of his poetry speak very little in his favor. They are full of such assertions as this, I have opened one of his volumes at random. Of genius the only proof is the act of doing well what is worthy to be done, and what was never done before. Indeed! Then it follows that in doing what is unworthy to be done, or what has been done before, no genius can be evinced. Yet the picking of pockets is an unworthy act. Pockets have been picked time immemorial, and Barrington, the pickpocket and point of genius, would have thought hard of a comparison with William Wordsworth, the poet. Again, in estimating the merit of certain poems, Whether they be Ossians or MacPherson's can surely be of little consequence. Yet in order to prove their worthlessness, Mr. W. has expended many pages in the controversy. Tantaine animis? Can great minds descend to such absurdity? But worse still, that he may bear down every argument in favor of these poems, he triumphantly drags forward a passage in his abomination with which he expects the reader to sympathize. It is the beginning of the epic poem tomorrow. The blue waves of Olin roll in light, The green hills are covered with day, Trees shake their dusty heads in the breeze. And this is gorgeous, yet simple imagery, Where all is alive and panting with immortality. This, William Wordsworth, the author of Peter Bell, Has selected for his contempt. We shall see what better he, in his own person, Has to offer, imprimis. And now she's at the pony's tail, And now she's at the pony's head, On that side now, and now on this. And almost stifled with her bliss. A few sad tears does Betty shed. She pats the pony. Where or when, she knows not. Happy Betty Foy. Oh Johnny, never mind the doctor. Secondly, the dew was falling fast. The stars began to blink. I heard a voice. It said drink, pretty creature drink. And looking o'er the hedge, before me I espied a snow-white mountain lamb with a maiden at its side. No other sheep was near, the lamb was all alone, and by a slender cord was tethered to a stone. Now, we have no doubt this is all true. We will believe it, indeed we will, Mr. W. Is it sympathy for the sheep you wish to excite? I love a sheep from the bottom of my heart. But there are occasions, dear B. there are occasions when even Wordsworth is reasonable. Even Stamboul, it is said, shall have an end, and the most unlucky blunders must come to a conclusion. Here is an extract from his preface. Those who have been accustomed to the phraseology of modem writers, if they persist in reading this book to a conclusion, impossible, will, no doubt, have to struggle with feelings of awkwardness. (laughs) They will look round for poetry, (laughs) and will be induced to inquire by what species of courtesy these attempts have been permitted to assume that title. (laughs) Yet let not Mr. W. despair. He has given immortality to a wagon, and the bee Sophocles has transmitted to eternity a sorto and dignified a tragedy with a chorus of turkeys. Of Coleridge, I cannot speak but with reverence. His towering intellect, his gigantic power—to use an author quoted by himself—te trouve que dans <laughs> une bonne partie de quelles mais non en quelles To employ his own language. He has imprisoned his own conceptions by the barrier he has erected against those of others. It is lamentable to think that such a mind should be buried in metaphysics, and like the Nicontas, waste its perfume upon the night alone. In reading that man's poetry, I tremble like one who stands upon a volcano, conscious from the very darkness bursting from the crater of the fire and the light that are weltering below. What is poetry? Poetry? That Proteus-like idea, with as many appellations as the nine-titled Corsaira. Give me, I demanded of a scholar some time ago, give me a definition of poetry. Très volonté, and he proceeded to his library, brought me a Dr. Johnson, and overwhelmed me with a definition. Shade of the immortal Shakespeare, I imagine to myself the scowl of your spiritual eye upon the profanity of that scurrilous Ursa Major. Think of poetry, dear Bee. B. Think of poetry, and then think of Dr. Samuel Johnson. Think of all that is airy and fairy-like, and then of all that is hideous and unwieldy. Think of his huge bulk, the elephant, and then, and then think of the Tempest, the Midsummer Night's Dream, Prospero, Oberon, and Titania. A poem, in my opinion, is opposed to a work of science by having, for its immediate object, pleasure, not truth, to romance by having, for its object, an indefinite instead of a definite pleasure, being a poem only so far as this object is attained. Romance presenting perceptible images with definite, poetry with indefinite sensations, to which end music is an essential, since the comprehension of sweet sound is our most indefinite conception. Music, when combined with a pleasurable idea, is poetry. Music, without the idea, is simply music. The idea, without the music, is prose. From its very definitiveness. What was meant by the invective against him who had no music in his soul? To sum up this long rigmarole, I have, dear B, what you no doubt perceive for the metaphysical poets as poets, the most sovereign contempt. That they have followers proves nothing. No Indian prince has to his palace more followers than a thief to the gallows. End of section 43.
9: Hirsch. Sonnet to Science by Edgar Allan Poe Science, true daughter of old time thou art, Who alterest all things with thy peering eyes, Why prayest thou thus upon the poet's heart? Vulture, whose wings are dull realities, How should he love thee, or how deem thee wise, Who wouldst not leave him in his wandering To seek for treasure in the jeweled skies, Albeit he soared with an undaunted wing? Hast thou not dragged Diana from her car, and driven the Hamadryad from the wood, to seek a shelter in some happier star? Hast thou not torn the Naiad from her flood, the elfin from the green grass, and from me the summer dream beneath the tamarind tree?
4: End of section 44 Recording by Alg Pug. Al-Araf by Edgar Allan Poe Part 1 Oh, nothing earthly save the ray Thrown back from flowers of beauty's eye As from those gardens where the day springs From the gems of Circassia. Oh, nothing earthly save the thrill of melody In woodland rill or music of the passion-hearted Joy's voice so peacefully departed That, like the murmur in the shell, Its echo dwelleth and will dwell, with nothing of the dross of ours, yet all the beauty, all the flowers that list our love, and deck our bowers, adorn yon world afar, afar, the wandering star. Twas a sweet time for Nisarche, for there her world lay lolling on the golden air, near four bright suns, a temporary rest, a garden spot in desert of the blest. Away, away, mid seas of rays that roll, Empyrean splendor o'er the unchained soul. The soul that scarce, the billows are so dense, Can struggle to its destined eminence, To distant spheres, from time to time, she rode, And late to ours, the favoured one of God. But now, the ruler of an anchored realm, She throws aside the sceptre, leaves the helm, And amid incense, and high spiritual hymns, Laves in quadruple light her angel limbs. Now happiest, loveliest in yon lovely earth, Whence sprang the idea of beauty into birth, Falling in wreaths through many a startled star, Like woman's hair amid pearls, Until afar it lit on hills Archaean, and there dwelt. She looked into infinity, and knelt. Rich clouds for canopies, about her curled, fit emblems of the model of her world, seen but in beauty, not impeding sight of other beauty glittering through the night. A wreath that twined each starry form around, and all the opaled air in color bound. All hurriedly she knelt upon a bed of flowers, of lilies such as rear the head on the fair capo doicato, and sprang so eagerly around, about to hang upon the flying footsteps of deep pride of her who loved a mortal, and so died. The cephalica, budding with young bees, upreared its purple stem around her knees, and a flower. Of Trebizond misnamed, inmate of highest stars, where erst it shamed all other loveliness. Its honeyed dew, the fabled nectar that the heathen knew, deliriously sweet, was dropped from heaven, and fell on gardens of the unforgiven in Trebizond, and on a sunny flower, so like its own above, that to this hour it still remaineth, torturing the bee with madness An unwonted reverie. In heaven, and all its environs, The leaf and blossom of the fairy plant, In grief disconsolate, linger. Grief that hangs her head, Repenting follies that full long have fled, Heaving her white breast to the balmy air Like guilty beauty, chastened and more fair. Nyctanthus too, as sacred as the light, She fears to perfume, perfuming the night. And Clytia, pondering between many a sun, While pettish tears adown her petals run, And that aspiring flower that sprang on earth, And died, ere scarce exalted into birth, Bursting its odorous heart in spirit To wing its way to heaven, From garden of a king. And Valesnerian lotus, thither flown From struggling with the waters of the Rhone, And thy most lovely purple perfume, Zante. He saw Lodoro, Fior di Levante, And the Nalumbo bud that floats for ever With Indian cupid down the holy river, Fair flowers and fairy, to whose care is given To bear the goddess' song in odours up to heaven. Spirit that dwellest where in the deep sky The terrible and fair in beauty vie, Beyond the line of blue THE BOUNDARY OF THE STAR WHICH TURNETH AT THE VIEW OF THY BARRIER AND THY BAR, OF THE BARRIER OVERGONE, BY THE COMETS, WHO ARE CAST FROM THEIR PRIDE AND FROM THEIR THRONE, TO BE DRUDGES TILL THE LAST, TO BE CARRIERS OF FIRE, THE RED FIRE OF THEIR HEART, WITH SPEED THAT MAY NOT TIRE, AND WITH PAIN THAT SHALL NOT PART. WHO LIVEST, THAT WE KNOW, IN ETERNITY WE FEEL, but the shadow of whose brow what spirit shall reveal? Though the beings whom thy, nasachi, thy messenger hath known, have dreamed for thy infinity a model of their own, thy will is done, O God! The star hath ridden high through many a tempest, but she rode beneath thy burning eye, and here in thought to thee. IN THOUGHT THAT CAN ALONE ASCEND THY EMPIRE, AND SO BE A PARTNER OF THY THRONE, BY WINGED FANTASY, MY EMBASSY IS GIVEN, TILL SECRECY SHALL KNOWLEDGE BE, IN THE ENVIRONS OF HEAVEN. SHE CEASED, AND BURIED THEN HER BURNING CHEEK, ABASHED, AMID THE LILIES THERE, TO SEEK A SHELTER FROM THE FERVOUR OF HIS EYE, FOR THE STARS TREMBLED AT THE DEITY. SHE STIRRED NOT, Breathed not, for a voice was there, How solemnly pervading the calm air, A sound of silence on the startled ear, Which dreamy poets name, The music of the sphere. Ours is a world of words, Quiet we call silence, Which is the merest word of all. Here nature speaks, and even ideal things flap shadowy sounds from visionary wings, but ah, not so, when thus, in realms on high, the eternal voice of God is passing by, and the red winds are withering in the sky. What though in worlds which sightless cycles run, linked to a little system, and one sun, where all my love is folly, and the crowd still think my terrors but the thunder-cloud, the storm, the earthquake, and the ocean-wrath? Ah, will they cross me in my angrier path? What, though in worlds which own a single sun, The sands of time grow dimmer as they run, Yet thine is my resplendency, So given to bear my secrets through the upper heaven. Leave tenantless thy crystal home, and fly, With all thy train, athwart the moony sky, Apart, like fireflies in Sicilian night, And wing to other worlds another light. Divulge the secrets of thy embassy To the proud orbs that twinkle, And so be to every heart a barrier and a ban, Lest the stars totter in the guilt of man. Up rose the maiden in the yellow night, The single-mooned eve, On earth we plight our faith to one love, And one moon adore. The birthplace of young beauty had no more, As sprang that yellow star from downy hours, up rose the maiden from her shrine of flowers and bent o'er sheeny mountain and dim plain her way, but left not yet her Thrasian reign. El Araf part two. High on a mountain of enamelled head, such as the drowsy shepherd on his bed of giant pasturage lying at his ease, raising his heavy eyelid starts and sees. With many a muttered, Hope to be forgiven, What time the moon is quadrated in heaven. Of rosy head, that towering far away, Into the sunlight ether, Caught the ray of sunken suns at eve, While the moon danced with the fair stranger light. Upreared upon such height, Arose a pile of gorgeous columns on the unburdened air. Flashing from Parian marble that twin smile far down upon the wave that sparkled there, and nursled the young mountain in its lair. Of molten stars their pavement, such as fall through the ebon air, besilvering the pall of their own dissolution while they die. Adorning then the dwellings of the sky. A dome, by linked light from heaven let down, sat gently upon these columns as a crown. A window of one circular diamond there, looked out above into the purple air, And rays from God shot down that meteor chain, and hallowed all the beauty twice again. Save when, between the Empyrean and that ring, some eager spirit flapped his dusky wing. But on the pillars seraph eyes have seen The dimness of this world, That greyish green that nature loves the best For beauty's grave, lurked in each cornice, Round each architrave, and every sculpted cherub thereabout, That from his marble dwelling ventured out, Seemed earthly in the shallow of his niche, Archaean statues in a world so rich, friezes from Tadmor and Persepolis, from Baalbek and the stilly clear abyss of beautiful Gomorrah, Oh, the wave is now upon thee, but too late to save! Sound loves to revel near a summer night. Witness the murmur of the grey twilight that stole upon the ear in Ayraco, of many a wild star-gazer long ago, that stealeth ever on the ear of him who, musing, Gazeth on the distance dim, And sees the darkness coming as a cloud, Is not its form, its voice, Most palpable and loud? But what is this? It cometh, and it brings a music with it, Tis the rush of wings, a pause, And then a sweeping, falling strain, And sache is in her halls again. From the wild energy of wanton haste her cheek was flushing, and her lips apart. And zone that clung around her gentle waist had burst beneath the heaving of her heart. Within the centre of that hall to breathe she paused and panted, Xanthi, all beneath, the fairy light that kissed her golden hair and longed to rest, yet could but sparkle there. Young flowers were whispering in melody To happy flowers that night, and tree to tree. Fountains were gushing music as they fell In many a starlit grove or moonlit dell. Yet silence came upon material things— Fair flowers, bright waterfalls, and angel wings, And sound alone that from the spirit sprang Bore burden to the charm the maiden sang. NEATH BLUEBELL OR STREAMER OR TUFTED WILD SPRAY THAT KEEPS FROM THE DREAMER THE MOONBEAM AWAY. BRIGHT BEINGS THAT PONDER WITH HALF-CLOSING EYES ON THE STARS WHICH YOUR WONDER HATH DRAWN FROM THE SKIES, TILL I GLANCE THROUGH THE SHADE AND COME DOWN TO YOUR BROW, LIKE EYES OF THE MAIDEN WHO CALLS ON YOU NOW. Arise from your dreaming in violet bowers, To duty beseeming these star-litten hours, And shake from your tresses, encumbered with dew, The breath of those kisses that cumber them too. Oh, how without you, love, could angels be blest? Those kisses of true love that lulled ye to rest. Up, shake from your wing each hindering thing, The dew of the night it would weigh down your flight, And true love caresses, Oh, leave them apart, They are light on the tresses, But hang on the heart. Lygia, Lygia, my beautiful one, Whose harshest idea will to melody run, Oh, is that thy will, On the breezes to toss, Or, capriciously still, Like the lone albatross, Incumbent on night, As she on the air, To keep watch with delight on the harmony there? Lygia, whatever thy image may be, No magic shall sever thy music from thee. Thou hast bound many eyes in a dreamy sleep, But the strains still arise which thy vigilance keep. The sound of the rain which leaps down to the flower, And dances again in the rhythm of the shower, The murmur that springs from the growing of grass are the music of things, but are modelled alas away then, my dearest, oh, hie thee away to springs that lie clearest beneath the moon-ray to lone lake that smiles in its dream of deep rest at the many-star isles that endure its breast, where wild flowers creeping have mingled their shade on its margin is sleeping full many a maid. Some have left the cool glade, and have slept with the bee. Arouse them, my maiden, on moorland and lea. Go, breathe on their slumber, all softly in ear, The musical number they slumbered to hear. For what can awaken an angel so soon, Whose sleep hath been taken beneath the cold moon, As the spell which no slumber of witchery can test, The rhythmical number which lulled him to rest? Spirits in wing, and angels to the view, A thousand seraphs burst the Empyrean through, Young dreams, still hovering on their drowsy flight, Seraphs in all but knowledge, The keen light that fell refracted through thy bounds afar, O death, from eye of God upon that star! Sweet was that error, sweeter still, that death, Sweet was that error, Even with us the breath of science dims the mirror of our joy. To them t'were the simoon, and would destroy, For what to them availeth it to know that truth is falsehood, Or that bliss is woe? Sweet was their death, with them to die, Was rife with the last ecstasy of satiate life. Beyond that death no immortality, But sleep that pondereth, and is not to be. And there, O may my weary spirit dwell, Apart from heaven's eternity, And yet how far from hell! What guilty spirit, in what shrubbery dim, Heard not the stirring summons of that hymn! But two, they fell, For heaven no grace imparts To those who hear not for their beating hearts. A maiden angel, and her seraph lover, O where! And ye may seek the wide skies over, Was love, the blind, near sober duty, known, Unguided love hath fallen, mid tears of perfect moan. He was a goodly spirit, he who fell, A wanderer, by mossy, mantled well, A gazer on the lights that shine above, A dreamer in the moonbeam, by his love, what wonder! For each star is eye-like there, And looked so sweetly down on beauty's hair, And they, and every mossy spring, Were holy to his love-haunted heart and melancholy. The night had found, to him a night of woe, Upon a mountain crag, young Angelo. Beetling it bends athwart the solemn sky, And scowls on starry worlds that down beneath it lie. So sat he with his love, His dark eye bent with eagle gaze Along the firmament. Now turned it upon her, But ever then it trembled To one constant star again. Ianthi, dearest, See how dim that ray, How lovely tears to look so far away! She seemed not thus upon that autumn eve I left her gorgeous halls, Nor mourned to leave, that eve, that eve, I should remember well, That sun-ray dropped in Lemnos with a spell On the arabesque carving of a gilded hall Wherein I sat, and on the draperied wall, And on my eyelids. Oh, the heavy light! How drowsily it weighed them into night! On flowers, before, and mist, and love, They ran with Persian Sadi in his Gulistan. But, oh, that light! I slumbered, death the while, Stole o'er my senses In that lovely isle so softly, That no single silken hair Awoke that slept, or knew that it was there. The last spot of earth's orb I trod upon Was a proud temple called the Parthenon. More beauty clung around her columned wall, than even thy glowing bosom beats withal and when old time my wing did disenthrall, thence sprang I, as the eagle from his tower, and years I left behind me in an hour. What time upon her airy bounds I hung, when half the garden of her globe was flung, unrolling as a chart unto my view, tenantless cities of the desert, too. Ianthi, beauty crowded on me then, and half I wished to be again of men my Angelo, and why of them to be? A brighter dwelling-place is here for thee, And greener fields than in yon world above, A woman's loveliness and passionate love. But list, Ianthe, when the air so soft failed, As my pen and spirit leapt aloft. Perhaps my brain grew dizzy, But the world I left so late was into chaos hurled. Sprang from her station on the winds apart, and rolled a flame the fiery heaven athwart. Methought, my sweet one, then I ceased to soar and fell, not swiftly as I rose before, but with a downward tremulous motion through light brazen rays. This golden star unto, nor long the measure of my falling hours, for nearer of all stars was thine to ours. Dread star, that came Amid a night of mirth, A red Dedalion on the timid earth. We came unto thy earth, But not to us be given Our Lady's bidding to discuss. We came, my love, around, above, below, Gay firefly of the night, we come and go, Nor ask a reason, save the angel nod She grants to us, as granted by her God. But Angelo! Than thine great time unfurled, Never his fairy wing or fairier world. Dim was its little disk, And angel eyes alone could see The phantom in the skies, When first Al-Araf knew her course To be headlong thitherward o'er the starry sea. But when its glory swelled upon the sky, As glowing beauties bust beneath man's eye, We paused before the heritage of men, And thy star trembled as doth beauty then. Thus in discourse the lovers whiled away the night that waned and waned and brought no day. They fell, for heaven to them no hope imparts, who hear not for the beating of their hearts. End of section forty five.
2: TAMERLANE by Edgar Allan Poe Kind soulless in a dying hour, Such, father, is not now my theme. I will not madly deem that power of earth May shrive me of the sin unearthly pride hath reveled in. I have no time to dote or dream. You call it hope, that fire of fire? It is but agony of desire. If I can hope, O oh God, I can. Its fount is holier, more divine. I would not call thee fool, old man, but such is not a gift of thine. Know thou the secret of a spirit, bowed from its wild pry into shame? O yearning heart, I did inherit thy withering portion with the fame. The searing glory which hath shone amid the jewels of my throne, halo of hell and with a pain not hell shall make me fear again. O craving heart, for the lost flowers and sunshine of my summer hours, the undying voice of that dead time, with its interminable chime, rings in the spirit of a spell, upon thy emptiness a knell. I have not always been as now, the fevered diadem on my brow, I claimed and won usurpingly, Hath not the same fierce heirdom given Rome to Caesar, this to me? The heritage of a kingly mind and proud spirit which hath striven triumphantly with humankind? On mountain soil I first drew life. The mists of Taglay have shed nightly their dews upon my head, and I believe the winged strife and tumult of the headlong air have nestled in my very hair. So late from heaven that dew, It fell mid dreams of an unholy night upon me, With the touch of hell, While the red flashing of the light From clouds that hung like banners o'er, Appeared to my half-closed eye The pageantry of monarchy, And the deep trumpet thunder's roar Came hurriedly upon me, Telling of human battle where my voice, My own voice, silly child, Was swelling Oh, how my spirit would rejoice, And leap within me at the cry, The battle-cry of victory! The rain came down upon my head unsheltered, And the heavy wind was giant-like, So thou, my mind! It was but man, I thought, Who shed laurels upon me, and the rush, The torrent of the chilly air Gurgled within my ear the crush of empires, With the captive's prayer, The hum of suitors, And the tone of flattery round the Sovereign's Throne. My passions, from that hapless hour, Usurped a tyranny which men have deemed Since I have reached to power. My innate nature, be it so. But, Father, there lived one who then, Then in my boyhood, when their fire burned With a still intenser glow. For passion must with youth expire. E'en then who knew this iron heart, In woman's weakness had a part. I have no words, alas, To tell the loveliness of loving well, Nor would I now attempt to trace The more than beauty of a face Whose lineaments upon my mind are Shadows on the unstable wind. Thus I remember having dwelt Some page of early lore upon, With loitering eye till I felt the letters, With their meaning Melt to fantasies with none. Oh, she was worthy of all love, Love, as in infancy, was mine. Twas such as angel minds above might envy, Her young heart the shrine On which my every hope and thought were incense, Then a goodly gift, For they were childish and upright, pure, As her young example taught. Why did I leave it, and adrift, Trust to the fire within, for light, We grew in age and love together, Roamed the forest and the wild, My breast her shield in wintry weather, And when the friendly sunshine smiled, She would mark the opening skies, I saw no heaven but in her eyes. Young love's first lesson is the heart, For mid that sunshine and those smiles, When from our little cares apart, and laughing at her girlish wiles, I'd throw me on her throbbing breast and pour my spirit out in tears. There was no need to speak the rest, no need to quiet any fears of her, who asked no reason why, but turned on me her quiet eye. Yet more than worthy of the love my spirit struggled with, and strove when, on the mountain peak alone, ambition lent it a new tone. I had no being but in thee, the world, and all it did contain in the earth, the air, the sea, its joy, its little lot of pain that was new pleasure, the ideal, dim vanities of dreams by night, and dimmer nothings which were real, shadows, and a more shadowy light, parted upon their misty wings, and so confusedly became thine image, and a name, a name, two separate yet most intimate things, I was ambitious. Have you known the passion, father? You have not. A cottager, I marked a throne on half the world as all my own, and murmured at such lowly lot. But just like any other dream, upon the vapor of the dew, my own had passed. Did not the beam of beauty which did while it through the minute, the hour, the day, oppress my mind with double loveliness, WE WALKED TOGETHER ON THE CROWN OF A HIGH MOUNTAIN, WHICH LOOKED DOWN AFAR FROM ITS PROUD NATURAL TOWERS OF ROCK AND FOREST, ON THE HILLS, THE DWINDLED HILLS, BEGIRT WITH BOWERS AND SHOUTING WITH A THOUSAND RILLS. I SPOKE TO HER OF POWER AND PRIDE, BUT MYSTICALLY, IN SUCH GUISE THAT SHE MIGHT DEEM IT NOT BESIDE THE MOMENT'S CONVERSE. IN HER EYES I READ, PERHAPS TOO CARELESSLY, A MINGLED FEELING WITH MY OWN. The flush on her bright cheek, to me, seemed to become a queenly throne, too well that I should let it be light in the wilderness alone. I wrapped myself in grandeur then, and donned a visionary crown. Yet it was not that fantasy had thrown her mantle over me, but that, among the rabble, men, lion, ambition is chained down, and crouches to a keeper's hand. Not so in deserts where the grand, the wild, the terrible Conspire with their own breath to fan his fire. Look round thee now on Samarkand. Is not she queen of earth, her pride above all cities? In her hand their destinies, in all besides of glory Which the world hath known, stands she not nobly and alone? Falling her various stepping-stone shall form the pedestal of a throne, and who her sovereign? Timur, he whom the astonished people saw Striding o'er empires haughtily, a diademed outlaw. O human love, thou spirit given, on earth of all we hope in heaven, which fallst into the soul like rain, Upon the Siroc withered plain, And failing in thy power to bless, but leavest the heart a wilderness. Idea, Which bindeth life around With music of so strange a sound, And beauty so wild a birth, Farewell, for I have won the earth. When Hope, the eagle that towered, Could see no cliff beyond him in the sky, His pinions were bent droopingly, And homeward turned his softened eye. Twas sunset, when the sun will part, There comes a sullenness of heart to him Who still would look upon The glory of the summer sun that soul will hate the evening mist. So often lovely, and will list to the sound of the coming darkness, known to those whose spirits hearken as one who, in a dream of night, would fly but cannot from a danger nigh. What though the moon, the white moon shed all the splendor of her noon, her smile is chilly, and her beam in that time of dreariness will seem so like you gather in your breath. A portrait taken after death. And boyhood is a summer sun, Whose waning is the dreariest one. For all we live to know is known, And all we seek to keep hath flown. Let life, then, as the day-flower, Fall with the noonday beauty which is all. I reached my home, my home no more, For all had flown who made it so. I passed out its mossy door. And though my tread was soft and low, A voice came from the threshold stone Of one whom I had earlier known. O, oh, I defy thee, Hell, to show on beds of fire That burn below, a humbler heart, a deeper woe. Father, I firmly do believe, I know, for Death, Who comes for me from regions of the blessed afar, Where there is nothing to deceive, hath left his iron gate ajar. And rays of truth you cannot see are flashing through eternity. I do believe that Eblis hath a snare in every human path, else, how, when in the holy grove, I wandered of the idol love who daily scents his snowy wings with incense of burnt offerings from the most unpolluted things, whose pleasant bowers are yet so riven above with trellised rays from heaven, no mote may shun. No tiniest fly the lightning of his eagle eye. How was it that ambition crept unseen Amid the revels there, Till growing bold he laughed And leapt in the tangles of love's very hair? 1829 End of section 46
0: Hey everyone, thank you for helping make January a tremendous, wonderful, gigantic month at Black Clock Audio Tales, People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Hey, we've got some Ken Height talking about Poe, we've got Ken Height and Adam Scott Glancy talking about Ligor and the Cho-Cho coming up, so check that out, that's going on, uh, should be this week, People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, so listen for this audio feed to uh, to check that out, and remember, rate, review, and subscribe. Give us five stars wherever you listen. Let people know about it. Review us on Facebook. Review us on Instagram. Hey, we are officially now on Spotify. So, if you don't like listening to this on your computer, you don't like listening to this on your phone, and you just want to listen to it through like a speaker or something like that. You know, however, you use Spotify, if You're like, man, I wish they were on Spotify. I'd listen to them more often or save it or whatever. Now you can. We're on Spotify. We're also everywhere that you listen to podcasts. So thank you so much for making January gigantic. And we look forward to seeing you in March with the cool stuff. And remember, check the show notes for links and schedules and find out everything that's going on with Badger's Drift Studios, our friends over at Sweat Drenched Press, the gang over at Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans, and of course me, D.B. Spitzer. Hey, check out my Instagram, pgttcm. All right, bye.